When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It is the Friday show. It's Neil Atkinson. I've got Josh Williams making his Friday show debut. He is excited, to say the least. I've got Mo Stewart and I've got Jim Johnson, who is also excited, to say the least. Uh, Mo, best also be excited because we'll see how we get on. I've got Tom Farhey, who is excited, to say the least. And I will have Jack Collins as well. I've not done that one yet. I like to pull the curtain back from time to time. Uh, that's why we're going to have to be quite punchy here. I've got Jack in about uh, four, 55 minutes. So that's, we need to get through it. Uh, Josh Williams, uh, Aston Villa have only gone and blown the whole thing wide open. Yeah, just about. Uh, I expected that as well, to be fair. I expected that to be a tricky game for City. You know, no Rodri, um, Aston Villa. I think their run now is is, is a th- 13 or 14 wins in a row. 15. At, at Villa Park. 15, 15 home league wins on the bounce. Yeah, really impressive. And Unai Emery seems to be able to thrive when he's the underdog. Uh, and this was obviously going to allow him to do that. Not always, I just like to say. <laughs> Not always allowed to thrive as the underdog. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point to be fair. Um, but now it's, it's, I'm in favour of it as well, and I think City, uh, it makes a nice change. And I think overall, what we're seeing from City lately, past like two or three weeks, I, I said the other day, mate, a lot of it, if it was Liverpool or Arsenal, a lot of it is like, you know, in terms of boxes that you usually tick to be a title contender, they're really not ticking many of them at all. And. As I said, I'm, I'm gen- generally in favour of it, considering they've won is it five of the last six titles. You know, so it makes for a nice change, and I, I still wouldn't rule them out because it's it's Pep Guardiola. Well, football football looks as the hardest it's looked for them since November 2020, mm. Mo. Yeah. Uh, but they win the league that year. <laughs> so let's just let's before we get carried away, they're still favourites for the title and they win the league that year. But it is it is worth saying one of the things that's noticeable in that game against Aston Villa is they don't get themselves a, sh- a shot mm. after the 15th minute. I think it is maybe even earlier. 11th. Uh, they they yeah, find 11th. themselves in this situation where I don't think they create great opportunities against Liverpool. Uh, it's mm. worth pointing that out. Uh, Obviously, it's all a bit out of control for them. They should beat Spurs, if we're honest, on the balance of chances and the mm-hmm. way the game goes, but they don't. And that, again, in the past, has been an assurance that's maybe absent. Um, and the other thing is, other sides look capable of picking up at least a solid number of points. Not necessarily going on a 15 out of 15 run like City may still be able to, mm-hmm. but at least looking as though they can win 12 out of 15. And making it really difficult for them. And that's been the problem at times. When City have gone on those runs, the teams who have been chasing them haven't really been able to match it apart from Liverpool 18, 19 and 21, 22. I think of Arsenal last year, it was the same time they were getting into their run was the same time Arsenal were falling off. So the test wasn't really there. Whereas, as you say, this, this year, the test may come from either side and I have to put Aston Villa in there as well um, yeah I'm I'm sceptical of talking City down in December I'm not talking them <laughs> down I'm just saying it's wide, it feels like it's wide open yeah. and they can, they can stop it from being wide open in the next eight weeks in that way in which they've done in the past they, yes they can and 
what I was going to say when I say I'm so, I'm skeptical of talking them down, it does feel like a difference between this year and previous years. They, like you say, that to be a, so dependent on one player, even when Man City have had fantastic players, they've never really been. You take one guy out, the whole thing falls apart. Rodri. Rodri. And, I mean, people said it at times when it was Vincent Company. I think back when we won the league, that was kind of the narrative. But I don't believe it was ever to this regard. And Guardiola will definitely be worried about it for a couple of reasons. One, I feel like he tried to solve it differently against Villa than he did against Arsenal. And it didn't work either. Uh, and <laughs> not only did it not work, in neither game did they do a lot of shots. I only think they only had five shots against Arsenal. Yeah. Which is the other time that they've had less than five in, the, in a game. So... They tried two different things, neither of them worked, and now they're scratching around because everyone else is going to know that any time that they've not got him around, they're going to be vulnerable. So for everyone else, the mission is to pick up as many points while you can, make as much hay while the sun is shining, and hope that you've still got a decent enough lead for when they do kick into gear later. They, they will kick into <laughs> gear. They're the two good aside, not two, Jim. I think there's another little thing, though, where... Managers at times, and again, we're talking here about a genuinely great manager, but I think there's, there's other genuinely great managers who've ended up doing this. You end up sort of committing to a set of problem-solving stratagems that ceases to be. There's a lot of defenders on the pitch from the outset, and it's sort of reminiscent to me of the old jokes about Kenny playing six left-backs and stuff like that. You know, like you've ended up talking your way into, well, I definitely need, what do I need? I need another reliable option. What do I need? I need another reliable option. He's picking teams where very few players are playing in the half spaces, which is what a lot of the best Guardiola sides have. He's sort of talking himself, like, you know, and even things like the journey from João Cancelo being a Roman fullback who could create all sorts now to, well, we'll just play centre halves there. It feels like, and that's worked, so you've got to be really clear, it's worked in the past, but now there's this full commitment to it. Well, I think as well, if you look at the the sort of rotations that he made last night at, at pivotal parts of the game, he brought Rico Lewis off, and I, think, I don't know if he if he exchanged him for Oscar Bob, but that was that they were <clears throat> two of the exchanges that happened mm -hmm. on the night. That doesn't feel like a huge amount of strength in depth to me, right? Which is frankly something that is unbelievably baffling when you're talking about the embarrassment of riches. Now, if you talk about Rodri's impact on on Manchester City, right? He has been in and out with suspensions and, and, and whatnot this season. Also De Bruyne, but although De Bruyne's coming back, there's been a little bit of, in spite of the amount of goals that he scored, and a way of stifling the big man, the, the magnificent Norwegian meat shield at the, at, at the top of the pitch. But in all of those things, last night... They looked vulnerable defending. They had they had the lion's share of possession. I think it was probably you know forty five fifty five. Thank you. Yeah. So it was the, the, the but you expect while the oldest teams to have the ball, whether they're home or away. <laughs> the interesting stat about about last night was that the the, the thing that Neil alluded to, which is the shots on target. Apparently, that's the lowest shot percentage ratio that a Guardiola team at any of the five big leagues has had, I think, in his entire tenure. Now, that would be a major worry to me because, oh, essentially, if you're taking Rodri out of the team, you're taking Grealish out of the team, you're taking De Bruyne out of the team, all of a sudden, what, they look a little bit brittle. You mentioned Arsenal last season, Mo, and one of the things you said was that, you know, in spite of City's resurgence... Uh, you know how I felt about that. Mm -hmm. But one thing I will say is, 
at crucial parts of the season last season, last season, we lost Gabby Jesus when he was banging form, right? Saliba when he was banging form. The goalkeeper sort of fell off a cliff towards the end of the season and Odegaard ran, ran out of steam, right? Maybe, just maybe, Man City aren't the colossus that we all think they are. And they feel a little bit weirdly in transition this season. After that treble thing, it's I don't know what it, what it does to a player when you've achieved it all, right? Does it... Does it then psychologically point to something where they're also the, looking for the next big challenge? The, also, there's, there's the players who've gone, Josh. And just looking, I've got the pass map here for you of City uh, against Villa first half. There's the first half and here's the second half. And this is to my point of, there's no one playing in, the, in what you call the traditional Guardiola half spaces. In the past, Mares pops up there, damages you. Gund- mm. Gundogan damages you from there. Can you know He's an absolute Swiss art, luxury <coughs> Swiss army knife of football or whatever he needs in the game. He finds his way through. They haven't got him at the minute. Even the subs that he's bringing on there, you know, you're looking at Nunes, Kovacic. To me, they're just centre-mids. And it's not like, yeah. you know, they're, just yeah. cent- they're not bad players. They're good players. They're just centre-mids. I just think it's odd he hasn't got that sort... I'm used to just sort of seeing... So some lads with a Roman brief who pop up exactly where you need to. They go and find the space. You know he's he's playing Foden, but he's turned him into an island in this game. Mm. I'm I'm to me as I say, I think the stuff that was working last season and that's become the default stuff. He's fall, fallen back on in this time of stress. But sometimes you've got to go the other way, and that's what I'm sort of seeing here with City. Every time I catch them, like I thought against Liverpool. I'm used to being terrified of the area 25 yards away from our own goal in the middle of the pitch. There was practically no footballer in there for most of the game, you know, and I think that's the odd thing. Yeah, if you, if you look at the business that they conducted over the, over the course of the summer, I do think some of it was, was slightly just generally different to previous seasons. I think I'm, I'm used to seeing the City add players who essentially feel either like finished products or really, really close to that, where Guardiola has to just kind of improve an already great player, potentially. And I think this summer, obviously they lost the Gundogan, who was who was who was massive for them. Lost the Mares, who again, seasoned Premier League winner, you know, top top player and stuff. And the players who they've got in, and I've I've touched on this a few times, like a, a Matthias Nunes, Liverpool passed up on. And he's a player who quite clearly has a lot of potential, but he he's he's rough around the edges. He's still quite raw. He needs his abilities to be harnessed. Um, and almost targeted in a certain way. I think Doku was similar. And I think it's interesting that in this game, Kovacic starts on the bench. I think he's a little bit... I don't think he's entirely convinced by what he's seen from Kovacic just mm-hmm. yet. So he ends up playing... Like, I think it was a midfield two of Akanji and Stones, at, you know, two centre-halves. So I said to Mo earlier, I think sometimes when, when City go through these periods, Guardiola takes a bit of time and, and, and comes out of nowhere with the ultimate tactical solution. And City then go on a massive run and end up winning the league. This time around, I'm not sure. I know you touched on the half spaces, but this time around, I'm not sure it's entirely a tactical problem. I think a lot of it is, you know, as Jim said, in terms of just being almost like a motivational thing, where they, they, to be fair to them, they have done it, that they have completed it almost. And yeah. I think on the back of Liverpool nearly winning the quad and having that big parade and stuff, it looked like that kind of impacted a few players at, at Anfield with, with Milner kind of saying, on the back of winning the, the, I think it was the, is it the Charity Shield or the Community Shield nowadays? Community Shield. Mm. Community Shield. Call it what you like. On the back of winning that, Milner was very like, you know, we've won it now. That was the last one. We wanted to win that because that was the one we hadn't won. And on the back of that, Liverpool then 
spiral basically for, for a full season and up finishing fifth. So I think it's it, it's almost natural to see City suffering like this, and it feels a bit weird because it's it doesn't overly feel like a solution that comes from Guardiola. It feels like maybe a transfer market solution or a just kind of the fire inside the players. Maybe I've seen some people say like you you need to lose to to, to want to win again almost, mm-hmm. and I think they need to go through a little bit of that. The half spaces thing is very interesting to me because um, in that in that final third of the game after the goal um, happened, the thing that I noticed was the the shape the, of the Villa side when when City advanced forward was so so well structured and well organised mm-hmm. that the opportunity to exploit those half spaces, which would have been done by by a better City team against. A, you know, as equally a good aside as as Villa were on the, on the night, and let's not forget, I thought Villa were fantastic yeah, last night. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. absolutely brilliant, right? But there was just there was a very kind of old fashioned WM thing going on with what they were doing. Everywhere you would have expected an inside forward to run between the lines, or at least pass between the lines for Haaland to run diagonal, diagonally. You know, Douglas Louise or whoever was was somehow found themselves mm-hmm. just in that sp- operating that space, and I do think that massively it, it, you know, leans into how good the manager Unai Emery actually is. Yep. Because the, one of the things that that I didn't realise is that in the sort of the well, he's probably eighteen months in now, is he something like that? Right in that time, he's barely made any churn within that squad at all. So essentially, what he's done is he's turned that those frankly, ordinary set of players mm-hmm. into a galvanised group that could do something really, really interesting. Now, the one other thing that I would say about that is that on the on the back of this slight indifference in City's form, and it's a surprise to everybody, there's a lot of teams around them that are actually playing quite well at the moment. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On to one of the sides that's theoretically at least playing well, Crystal Palace versus Liverpool, Josh. Um, I mean, Roy thinks the Crystal Palace supporters have been spoiled. We'll circle back around onto that in a minute or two. Um, <laughs> they've got injuries. Who doesn't have them? But they've got a really strong centre-back pair, and Elise is dangerous. To me, Liverpool would interest in Sheffield United, especially in the cold light of day. In the ground at the time, you're concerned. It's a bit of a funny view. It's all happening up the other end of the pitch, in a way, all the way through, both both halves, really. But Liverpool have Sheffield United at arm's length, and that looked to me like it was almost like a tactical decision from Liverpool. Where it, you know they got fifty five sixty, and I think the attitude was we're not conceding. You just stay there. We're not conceding today. Yeah, and to an extent, you you, you have to go through certain games like that during the festive period, just because you, you're never really going to play well to a certain level every three days when the weather's like that. The pitches can be like that. You're playing away from home, it's night games and stuff. So I had a feeling it was going to be a little bit scrappy, and and, and it, it proved to be like that. But I felt defensively. Liverpool generally performed quite well, didn't really look in trouble at any point really and I think that's going to be important going through the festive period with Kelleher in goal because I think that generally should be the tactic if you've got a weaker shot stopper in between the sticks, generally just aim to give him, give him less to do basically mm. um, and you will achieve that by being defensively stronger but 
Yeah, in terms of Palace, looks like a, a, I think previous seasons people have called that maybe a bit of a banana skin, a bit of a you know tricky game for a, for a top side going away from home and that. But uh, on the back of what Hodgson said, <laughs> but, I mean, very very on brand. It's it's, uh, it's it's hilarious, isn't it? It's a strange situation where I think at the end of the next game, both teams will probably feel like they did at the end of this game, as in Liverpool will hopefully have had a a, t- a game where they quietened the crowd down held them off at arm's length, like you say, and maybe put it through at the end. And that's exactly what happened to Palace against Bournemouth. Bournemouth kind of held them off at arm's length. I don't think Palace had a shot on target in the second half. And they had a lot of the ball, but they didn't actually get a shot on target. And that's what we saw. Shots on target spoil you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> spare the, what is it? Spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, you've got to go through. You've got to go through. No shots on target for a half at home, if you understand the, the meaning of true football. <laughs> that, is, that is the Anfield rap equivalent of a, a Victorian Christmas message from Neil Atkinson. There. I mean, for, it took me a while to realise what was going on there. But yeah, I mean, it, feel, it, it wouldn't be as wild if Roy actually came out and said something like that. But the point is, is that Liverpool... For Liverpool, Sheffield United was the perfect breeding ground, the perfect training for Crystal Palace. I think there are times when Palace can be dangerous. I think that their own confidence means that we should be in a position to make this game easier than it has been in the past, for sure. Elise is dangerous. It's a good centre-back pair, and I actually quite like the goalkeeper. Um, I know a few people don't, but I think he might be one with, with, with a fair bit of potential. Uh, in the, They've lost Mitchell, Jim, it looks like, and, and he's... I think he's an excellent player, uh, which throws open a couple of questions. And obviously, they've lost to Corey as well. Uh, it was good, uh, but not great. Uh, that was one of the reasons I was pleased we didn't buy him when when Arsenal went there and got the one nil uh, earlier in the season when Arsenal ended up going down to ten. Um, that but, day was a slog for Arsenal. It's worth pointing out. Uh, yeah. Palace Palace asked questions, but Arsenal Arsenal also kept them at arm's length. And that's the that's the thing that I think is really interesting about this transition under Hodgson from Vieira. And I. Not entirely sure what the Palace fans really want from that experience because they were they've been reared on Uncle Roy for a long time. Then they get something different. The minute that goes a little bit twitchy, they they bin the uh, the you know, the, the, the brighter, newer, fresh faced thing for the old uncle again, and then they wonder why. It's, it's keeping them on after the summer that I don't understand. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. Yeah, they, they played some good stuff at the end of last season. It felt like a nice little swan song for him. I don't quite understand why he stayed. Because I don't know what he thought he was going to get. Well, I think, and then I don't quite understand why they were, they, they were in favour of it. Well, I suppose, in one sense, if he's not enjoyed doing his garden and you know no one's no one's asking him to do punditry or any of those sort of <laughs> things he phones up Ray Lewington doesn't he and he says come on do you wait, fancy having another go get the band back together yeah get the band back together and then all of what a sudden what band yeah mm. oh god yeah in fact we'll, we'll we'll put that out of there and decide what sort of band we think they are they mm. actually are Skiffle you know, yeah well no I'm not I, look, I've too jolly like, Skiffle you're right go yeah on. absolutely <laughs> yeah, Lonnie Donegan would be turning in his grave yeah. if he thought he was being compared to Subpar <laughs> Grand Parsons yeah, yeah. Wait, Lonnie, Lonnie well again you're the flame Burrito Brothers, the, Ray Lewington, and, 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 and well, <laughs> well, that's that. I mean, that's the sort of that's the question with them, Jim. Is that bit where I, I and it's what what it does to the players. Now, I think players are more resilient these days to this sort of nonsense in a really weird way. I think you can do the manager sets the weather, but it wouldn't surprise me if knocking around the WhatsApp groups, just, let's just take no notice of this fella and do our thing a little bit amongst the players. And that's why I think Liverpool can't be complacent going into Palace because I'll say again, Elise is dangerous. Edward pops up here and there with a goal. Ayu is horrible to play against, and they'll be determined to put it right after what went on against Bournemouth and 
the, the sequence of games is interesting, isn't it? Mo alluded to this. He felt that, that the Sheffield United game was the perfect breeding ground for going to Selhurst Park mm-hmm. and, and seeing how that works. But let's be honest, Sheffield United weren't shit. Right on, you know, on the night they they were you like we, we but but they got into good positions without getting shots off. That's and that's the thing. That's what we need to do against Paris, and we can do against Paris because there were times when the crowd got up against Sheffield United. And, oh, oh, there's a bit of danger, and then the door closed. It's almost like you give them a bit of a peek, and then the door closed. That's what we need to do. And Palace at the moment, it's funny because you said about what what they wanted from Vieira. I think that they is very different between the guys running Crystal Palace and the Crystal Palace fans from speaking to them. Well, yeah, I think a lot of them are tired of the Hodgson era and could have been quite happy for him to shake hands and walk away in the summer. But but that begs the question with that group of players where do you go beyond that because if it's about identity right then Crystal Palace are a side with a very very definite identity under a manager who's been really good to them over a number of years but let's face it no one's getting getting rich playing that kind of football no. no one's dead excited about that and you know you look at it on paper and you think to yourself Liverpool had a comfortable 2-0 win against against a team that's in absolute turmoil with their new manager there's not going to be any new manager bounce you know on the basis of that uh, of that particular result but you could argue that because since since I was certainly last sitting in this in, in, in this chair, Palace's fortunes have definitely gone mm. south, yeah. right? Then they'll probably just try and bore Liverpool to death. Do you know what I mean? You know, and it could be one of those things because Neil and alluded to the Arsenal game. Now we were unlucky to lose lose a player on, on the night, and it totally changed the complexion of the game. And Neil's again right to say that we we were sort of backs against the wall. But if you look at that game and you look at the, the look at the stats around it, the players that we brought on to cope with um, Palace having eleven players and us having ten players, we never really looked in any real yeah. real trouble. I mean that's the thing. I mean Liverpool hold back Shimakash, Elliot, Gravenberg, Nunez, and Jones to some degree. I mean a couple of those players have said they get on. Josh, um, do we think they all feature? I think they will probably feature. Whether they all start is another question. I think the the game during the week against uh, in, in, in the Europa League I think is is going to give us an opportunity to probably start the likes of Elliot um, maybe a Gravenberg as well in that one to be honest I think Nunes will come in for the Premier League I, th- I thought his his cameo is it a cameo by the way I got told off for calling it a cameo I don't know it's quite long enough on Twitter no quite long enough sorry I think it's too long for it's a cameo long, yeah okay he's on the pitch <laughs> too long for a cameo I think cameo could be if he'd come on on 78 yeah it's an easter egg big, yeah, yeah it could be that, could be that. <laughs> it's just a supporting role you, yeah, you know yeah. in, a, in a feature movie yeah well I thought he made an impression anyway whenever it was um, he did he, I thought he, he just yeah. can't fucking keep him out the action <laughs> pros and cons well, it's I, mad I think I think the comparison there though between him and Gakpo is, is just it's, it's proper glare when you when you compare them as nines, I think Nunes naturally without it, even when he's off it, he's just a natural magnet. He's an he's a natural threat. He just causes problems for the opposition and things happen because of him. Whereas Gakpo can be seemingly playing well, and you check his numbers, he hasn't had a shot yet, and, and things like that. I think Nunes is just that output merchant that for me is 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 growing in prominence to the extent where 
when he's not starting, you, you you kind of roll your eyes a little bit because you want him involved to that extent. And I well, Gakpo did all right when he went left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he right. did. I was happy that happened as well. By the way, I was, yeah. I, I was happy Diaz came off and Gakpo got the yeah. opportunity over there. And I, me- I remember mentioning a few weeks ago that that was one of the positives of everyone from from Jota getting injured in terms of that right side, yeah, that left side of the spot opening up a little bit. Um, I think Simakas naturally comes in. I thought Gomez was not great on the ball. Um, I mean, it's understandable to an extent, but even certain five-yard passes, he was just completely astray. So I think Gomez is, has to be a bit of a last resort, I think, for that left, left-sided left spot. I don't think he's entirely suited to it. And Jones, um, I thought he was a bit quiet when he came on, but I've said before, I, I like him when he's involved in the team. I think he offers Liverpool a degree of control. I think he helps Diaz as well. Yeah, yeah. Start Diaz, yeah. I think he helps Diaz. Yeah. I also think Jones is going to play better and better once he gets back into his rhythm because he had he's another one who's had another considerable time out of the, of the team for various reasons. So, and he does feel like a rhythm player to me. I agree mostly. Elliot's the the one for me. It's weird because I feel like his can we call them cameos? I'm not sure. His features. <laughs> um, by the way, I think Nunes is absolutely a character actor. He's like the Danny Trejo of character actors. He's <laughs> right in there in the action. Um, but yeah, uh, when Elliot's come on, he's done well. He's improved the game. And you would like to think that that would lead to a start. And I would have thought that maybe that would have been the game uh, the weekend. Oh, sorry, the, the game last night. But it didn't. Uh, and then when he did come on, I didn't think he was as influential as he's been in some of his times. But I don't know. Maybe the plan is for him to start this game against Crystal Palace. I can see him being a threat in that respect. <sighs> of the others, yeah, I'd like to see Ogan Gravenberg get another start again. Uh it's funny, obviously, McAllister injury. Uh, we, we don't know what it is we yet, don't know what because it is yet. he looked fine walking off, really, in the grand scheme. Mm. He says but, it's a cut. But this was another game uh, in midweek where I could have thought we could have... That would have been a game where I could see him getting a rest, and he didn't rest him. So I, 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 I'm terrible at predicting what the hell Gleog is going to do. But uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Endo again, either, I must admit. You could make this case for a lot of players, though. You know, like on, on the back of the performance, like, <laughs> I felt it was probably Sobosly's best for a, for a good few weeks now. And I think just considering that, maybe you want to just keep him involved and and, and, and also give him to play him Thursday. In fact, he doesn't have to travel. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he can he can play again. Hopefully, keep that rhythm and then take that maybe into the into the is it Man United Man United yeah. next after that? So does it feel like a must win? Or does um, it feel like a must match Arsenal's results? Who've Arsenal got again? Uh, Aston Villa half five. <sighs> Um, Top of the table, clash. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's first versus third, third versus first, that way around. It does feel like a bit of a must win if, if we're if we're intent on making a bit of a statement and, and making Arsenal sweat because I think the last thing we want to want to do is is give Arsenal a presence in that sense. And obviously, last season they only really had to compete with Manchester City. This would be a way of of suggesting that even if Manchester City aren't, aren't on it as much this season, you're going to have to deal with us. We, we are going to be mm. right there with you the whole way. It's an absolute must win it if I want to be able to enjoy the Aston Villa against Arsenal game afterwards. I mean, it's a big deal. But also, I just think from the point of view of, yes, you can say that that game does mean that there's a positive result from a draw because someone else is going to be dropping points. But again, I really do think that pressing home our advantage is going to help because it means that that... 
for Arsenal, it's going to be just another layer of things they'll have to deal with. They're going to because that will mean we'll overtake them, won't yeah. it? It'll be nil-nil going into the 98th minute. <laughs> and then the severed, severed prosthetic head of Darwin Nunes will come in and score on the back of a tortoise. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there we are. Uh, well, we're out through the 3 p.m. See what it did there? Uh, yes. Uh, character actors. Uh, we're out through the 3 p.m.s. Brighton versus Burnley. Looks just a home banker, Josh. The Burnley resurgence uh, stopped immediately and we'll just kept them at arm's length. And this is the problem that they've got. They'll just be kept at arm's length. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. It does feel a bit Norwich, to be honest, for them. Uh, and I didn't really think it would. I, th- I thought they'd kind of adapt a little bit more, and I thought company would kind of use that Premier League experience, being there, done it, if you want, and, and adapt that a little bit. But they have been a bit... Um, the showcase good performances. I've seen decent performances from them, but I think it's I think it's in both boxes that are a little bit just weak, and, and you know, in terms of results, that's going to sting you, really. Um, Alright, next one along the lines Wolves versus Forest um, In lots of ways We just feel like the saddest game conceivable Like two teams have got to play each other Football will break out Wolves are a decent enough side They might get diddled at some point by VAR <laughs> Forest looks so miserable with the 5-0 It is it is staggeringly sad It's a weird situation, isn't it? I mean, even Steve Cooper's post-match interview Where he was embarrassed about all the love he was getting I was just like, oh mate I, I mean, and, and you you totally feel for Like, he, he feels seems like a good fella And I mean, both him and Gary O'Neill Obviously spend time in Liverpool So that's one of the things you, I always tend to look out for. But in terms of this game going into it with any type of confidence, the things that you don't want to see in a team, you saw a lot of them against Fulham. I think not just the goals, but the manner of the goals they conceded. Yeah. Players not being tracked. Um, not running backwards. Not running backwards. Uh, effort application problems. And a game that got away from them very quickly. And then you look at Wolves, and yes, things are going externally against them, but they are still fighting. They do still have a plan. We saw that for them against Burnley. It wasn't pretty, but they got the job done, and I expect them to be able to do similar against Forest. Sheffield United Brentford is massive for the home team, uh, Jim. It, it's <coughs> almost, if I say, an irrelevance for Brentford. Every game counts, but for for Wilder to have any any legitimate sort of hopes, Brentford at home for now given where this season is and how many games Sheffield United would need to win between now and the end of the campaign to have even a fighting chance of still being in the league. It, Brentford at home is the sort of one they've got to win. I don't quite know what Chris Wilder does right now because it, it's such a busy period to go and... He can't, can't coach them. No, <laughs> you know, it, that's what I mean. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, so, so, so he comes in now and you know, he can't bring players in. Right. I mean, I suppose maybe that's the one thing he, he is he is doing, isn't it? He's having a look and assess and see what see what happens. But I don't know whether or not there's anything in this game or any game moving forward for, for Sheffield United because they just seem to have no kind of tactical or physical or technical response to the rigours of the Premier League. And whereas some of those teams around them, you even Burnley have scored the have, have got the odd performance and and some points here and there you know and you know Luton I mean we could talk about Luton maybe a bit later but you know I, I personally don't think Luton are going to go down you know just on the basis of performances against Arsenal and Liverpool so you look at Sheffield United and you just think a team that's as well organized and as direct in their approach as Brentford would have no problems just getting something out of that game. Uh, Man United Bournemouth, uh, <laughs> Josh first. I think this could be a really good game. Genuinely, if I could watch any yeah. of the three o'clock, it'd be this one by a mile. Uh, United create loads of space on the pitch. That's the thing that it looks as though Ten Hag's committed to. Becomes a little bit of a broken team in one sense, but it's sort of half working for them in the other. 
I think Bournemouth are in loads of ways almost perfect opponents. You could tell me almost any scoreline here, and I'd say it's plausible. Up to and including Bournemouth winning three 0 and United winning five 0 because Bournemouth are so happy to go man v man uh, mm. in certain areas. United do some of that as well. I just think it could be a really, it could become a really open game from nowhere, which would surprise people. Well, Man United, you really don't know what you're going to get at the minute, and I think one of their recurring issues for years now has been just the inability to basically build to the third of the pitch using a midfielder who's comfortable doing that. And I think that was why they all kind of fell off the seats when they, when they saw the youngster, is it Maynou? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he offered elements of that and, and you could tell supporters were basically starving because they were, they were really falling over him. Um, and I think if you look at Bournemouth's approach, it, it, should, it should tie into that in terms of just pressing them into mistakes and really making the game uncomfortable for them. And, I must say, I'm, I'm happy to see Bournemouth doing well. I think me and Mo did the podcast early, early in the season and we did just general, like, you know, tips as in who's going to win the title, who's going to finish in the top four. And I think my my kind of, like, jack-in-the-box pick in terms of a team that would maybe surprise you was, was Bournemouth. And then first couple of weeks of the season, they just looked miles off. First couple of months, first couple mm. of months. Yeah, 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 but they seem to have picked up now and I think the coach is good, I really do. I, I, I remember saying this a couple of months ago on the Anfield Rap, actually. Um, so it's good to see them kind of representing his values now. And I think that could be that could be an upset, that one, even if, if you could even deem it as an upset, to be honest. One, four, the last six, Bournemouth. But yeah. United are in form as well, as has been often uh, <laughs> remarked upon. No, I think this. I think it's a really interesting... genuinely think it's an interesting game. I don't think it's... I'm not being daft. No, I mean, the United in form bit is a bit I laughed at because it's like, what is form in Man United? They yeah. are an abstract painting when it comes to form. Um, also, I think that there's a man, they are a kind of Man United who would much prefer to play Chelsea at home than would play Bournemouth at home because everyone knows what you do in the big games. They seem to still be able to put in... Especially at Old Trafford. At Old Trafford, they still be able to put in a decent performance. When they're expected to go and do uh, do well, they seem to be struggling. And I think that Bournemouth will be in a very good position to be able to exploit that. So, yeah, I like you, I would watch this game. There's something I'm kind of interested in, in terms of like his team selection. Has he got one eye on the, um, on the Tuesday night game? Yeah. Right? Because... He's, he's unlikely to play against many better teams this season, right? Uh, that will be a big night. It's Old Trafford, Bayern Munich. You know that that's what that's what the, the United fans pay for. Does he? Do do the players have one look at it because they obviously want to stay in the, in, in the Champions League? But it seems a long way off for them now. The Champions League. Mm. What also seems a long way off is European football. You know, because if that doesn't doesn't go well and nothing's in their hands, they could end up with nothing. And I know the people around this table want it to be nothing because we've had the Dublin conversation uh, last time we were on. Um, the other thing to say about that is, and I don't know if I dreamt this in, in a feverish kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know, that time of year kind of flu virus type way. Scott McTominay is their top scorer. Scott McTominay is. Yeah. You can't keep him out of the action. That's mad. Yeah, he's banging them in though. You know, you, we've all got to accept it. No, look, I'm not. I'm not not accepting it. I, you know, I think he's okay as a as, as a footballer. You get what? If Harriet was here, she likes my phrase. A solid citizen. Scott M- M- McTominay is the Wikipedia definition of a solid citizen. <laughs> Fifth highest right. score. Fifteenth highest score. Joint fifteenth highest score in the division. Right. Right. How many years ago? Five. Five, yeah. But it does, it does, it does lean into some some rather worrying stats about some of their well, strikers. I think he can be a player who you can harness in a good team, but you need to have the structure around him. The fact that he's becoming so influential, it's almost like no one else is 
portraying those instincts because most of his goals are arriving at the right time, being yeah. able to predict where the ball's falling, dropping, and being a good finisher. Like over the course of his time where he's been scoring goals, I've looked into it, and I, he was a, a striker as a youth player. So in terms of having the ability in front of goal, it's not as surprising. The surprising part, as Jim says, is that he's the only one displaying any of those things. I do think Hoyland, uh, to a certain extent, is. It's more confidence rather than ability why he's not been able to score a goal in the Premier League so far. I still think that he's doing a lot of good things in the games and as we've seen, the goals will come in the Champions League for him. But for everyone else, it's like, I don't know where the next... um, I don't know where the next bit of constructive play is coming from. You can tell where the next win's coming from, but constructive play, I don't know. There we are. Uh, half five. Uh, it is the big one. Aston Villa versus Arsenal. Here's Tom Farhi yet again on the Anfield wrap. We're going to have Tom Farhi on retainer any time, day or night, uh, to talk about the wondrousness that is Aston Villa Football Club after they didn't just beat uh, Manchester City. They emphatically outplayed them at Villa Park, uh, denied them oxygen to all intents and purposes, and then found a way to get the ball into the back of the net um, this is not a mid-table side doing a bit of a number on City and then the Anfield rap gets the one because, oh yeah, 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 isn't it all lovely? This is an Aston Villa side who've won every single home game they've played this season. They've now played a cross-section of everybody. The smallest victory they've had over the course of the campaign is against Manchester City. It was only 1-0. Only 1-0, you say? I mean only 1-0. Ryan and Albion 6-1. West Ham, excuse me, 4-1. Fulham, 3-1. Everton, 4-0. Alice, 3-1. Luton, 3-1. Um... Tom Farhi, this is what being on the march is like. Yeah, I've, I've been spoiled to the point where last night 1-0 was like, that was genuinely disappointing that we only beat him 1-0 because the scoreline, I can't believe I'm saying this, the scoreline flatters Man City, which is something I never thought I'd say. Go, going into the game, I checked their lineup because as I said to Mo, I, I celebrated uh, Rodri's suspension like a Villa goal. And when I looked at their lineup, I said, Guardiola's a man man where he plays people in the wrong positions. But surely he's not playing a midfield two of Akanji and John Stones against our midfield of uh, Bubakar Kamara and Douglas Louise. I said they will get munched up. And that happened. They they were completely unpress resistant. Every time we pressed them, we seemed like we were going to win the ball back. And every time they pressed us, we said no thank you and passed it around them. I mean, Yori Tiedemann's ball retention abilities yesterday were... Absolutely insane. He was popping off little back heels. Every time they put two men around it, he'd just walk between them. And they, you get a lot of when you're, a, I wouldn't say a smaller team, because we're not a smaller team, but when you're not one of the traditional top four, you get a lot of fake platitudes from Pep Guardiola where he's like, wow, what a team, what a team. And then he beats you 6 0. And he was doing that before the game yesterday. And I was thinking, he's going to regret doing all this, the fake platitudes for Unai Emery because. They're not coming here and they're having it their own way like they normally do. And you know what? I kind of respect him for after the game yesterday. He said, yeah, they're the better team. He was like, just got to hold our hands up. They were much better than us. And I've never seen us played football like that genuinely. Hand on heart. It's the best 90-minute Villa performance I've ever seen. We've scored more. We've won by more. We've never dominated a team back like that. It's, yet again, uh, testament to the manager. He makes changes. He doesn't stick with what may well be anticipated in those footballers uh, doesn't get anyone off until deep uh, past the 80 minute mark so he backs the boys to the hilt in there and then from there he gets his reward um, Bailey comes in uh, into the side Tielemans moves he's going for 2-2-2 two, two, two. Uh, that's enough twos might be one two too many but I understood where I was up to and what I was coming from 
and he gets his really nice compact shape that he loves all the way through the pitch. And Villa are able to McGinn occupies so much ground backed up by Dina. Tielemans occupies so much ground. Bailey stretches them going one way. It's that's a, it's a manager who at the minute I think feels at the peak of his powers. He really does. If we we go into every game doing something slightly different and 95% of the time it works. We we said to Man City yesterday, we're going to play with your game and we're going to do it better. So for the first five minutes, I think we created three chances in the first five minutes, all from playing it out from the back and then moving up the pitch. Like The way we move up the pitch is really interesting to me because it feels like a game of snake where we just gradually get bigger and bigger and more ominous going up pitch and then we slowly work our way and then oh we'll run the G box and we're almost going to score and Man City had five minutes where they did that to us they had their final shot of the game on the 11th minute I'm not making a mistake there their final shot of the game came on the 11th minute like 85 minutes they went without having a shot and they have some of the best players in the world every every decision Unai Emery makes at the moment he's he's being backed up by the players He's playing. Yeah, I want to. No, that's. I want to go into that because we can. We can praise the manager. The manager should be praised. But I think there's a real. I saw, for instance, Villa against Tottenham, and I was overwhelmed by how good McGinn was. Yeah, uh, they went one nil. Like he absolutely dominates the game. Uh, is 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 just abreast of everything that's going on in such a way. It seems to me as though the one of the key tricks here, from Emery's point of view, is he isn't one with the players. It feels like there's a real a real synergy in, in tactical terms and intellectual terms and you know in terms of graft in terms of desire all the hits it feels like the players yeah. memory are so aligned and that's the most important thing yeah like if you look at the lineup yesterday only two of the players that started yesterday were signed by Emery I think there was four signed by um, Dean Smith and four signed by Gerard so he, he's come in and. He hasn't done that. He never at any point has done the new manager thing where he said, these are my boys. I need my boys to do what I want to do. He's came in and he said, all of these players are excellent players, whether they were with Villa in the championship, like Tyrone Mins and John McGinn, or whether they were there for the first season where we were struggling, like Esri Konsa, you know, he's come in and he's made everyone believe that they're important and they're good enough. And even players like Yori Telemans, I'll be honest, after the first four games that he played uh, me and a few of the people I go with said he, he doesn't look up to it he, he looks unfit he looks he looks slow he looks ponderous on the ball and now Unai Emery's playing him off Ollie Watkins and he's putting in nine out of ten performances every week and it's just the belief that he gives everyone the the, the biggest thing he's done not, is not for the players it's for the fans because he has changed the atmosphere at Villa Park so much his first few games when we were passing it around the back, everyone had their head in their hands going, what are we doing? Just get it launched. We've seen these players try and play out from the back and lose it. And he said to us, he was like, I'm going to take you on a journey, but you really got to trust me. And please don't go, whoa, when we're playing it out from the back because the boys need to believe that you think they're good enough. And there was about four moments yesterday where Paris Horrors in our box chested the ball down put his foot on it and just stood on it for about five seconds being like I'm not going to lose this I'm going to pick the right pass and it's it's just uh, get him a new contract he's he's only he's been here a year give him a new contract tell him tell him he can do whatever he wants I don't care name a stand after him just anything to keep him at the moment 
what's what's a reasonable target? Before we talk about the Arsenal game, because I think it is really, really interesting. There's something I'm going to tell you in a minute about the Arsenal game. But what's a reasonable target, do you think, for Villa between now and the end of the season? It, it's it's a it's a movable feast at the moment what the target is because before the game Mo said to me do you have your eye on the title and I said well I've got the, I've got the corner of my eye on it and it's something that is in the deep the deep recesses of my of my mind says that yeah that team can do it but watching the way we like single the way we took them apart yesterday that was an eleven that if you could play that eleven every week that team could win the league and I sound absolutely mental. But the way they're playing, their adaptability, it, it's unreal. But the realistic target, I can't, I can't believe this is even realistic. The realistic target is top four. We've got a nice little buffer now to uh, Newcastle, Tottenham and Man U. I think we're five points above them. And the, the Christmas fixtures, yeah, we've got games in Europe, but they don't look too bad once we get past Arsenal. We get past Arsenal, then I think we've got like Sheffield United, and Man United on Boxing Day, and you know I, I fancy our chances to beat any of them. Yeah, you've got you've got Sheffield United and Burnley both at home. Um, yeah. From the on Friday the twenty second, you've got Sheffield United. And on the thirtieth, you've got Burnley. You go away to Man U on on Boxing Day in the night, uh, and you've got you know before then you've got a bit of a sticky one going away to Brentford, which feels a bit could go either way because it's good, good yeah. for everyone going away to Brentford. But it's not it's not beyond the realms of possibility, is it? That you know you get seven points say from the. The game at Old Trafford and the, the the two other games there, and then yeah, will be you know perfectly healthy. And the idea of top four, if you can go to Old Trafford, and I know you'd you'd obviously need to go there right now and think, oh, well, we're better than these. But the idea of just making sure they don't win means they don't they don't get any ground back on you. Yeah, exactly. And the, the it, it, we could get into a position where we very feasibly, if if we beat Arsenal, which, which is a big if, but I I do really fancy our chances. If we beat Arsenal, we can get into a position where we feasibly look at saying. Well, we could do 19 home wins in a row with the home fixtures that we've got coming up. And I think it was on Skybet today. We've moved to 14 to 1 to not lose a game at home all season, which I said at the beginning of the season, RA needs to be no more than two losses at home all season. And one of those home losses I was thinking of was Man City. So that's out of the way. And if you, if you look at it, we've, we've, we've played Man City, we've played Chelsea, we've played Tottenham, and we've, we've beat them all. They're some of the games that you think are trickier games. We've still got Newcastle to play at home in the back half of the season. Liverpool to play at home just as the title race is really getting into it. And there's one, there's one point I want to make that was at the beginning of the season when we got battered by Newcastle. The week after, Sir Alex Ferguson did an interview and they were like, which team's really impressed you this season? And he was like Aston Villa in the game against Newcastle. It, they played really well. And even unlike the Guardian Football Weekly, they were like, I think I think he's past his best now, Sir Alex. I, I think his mind's going a bit. Maybe the greatest football manager of all time was right and not an idiot, and maybe he saw something that you know the broadsheet people didn't see. Um, so you're not favourites for the game at the weekend? We're not. No, nope. okay. also going to favourites. I don't know. I don't know if I've we'll said this on the podcast yet. When it comes out as a full show, I might say it again to Jim Johnson. He's going to be talking about it from an Arsenal point of view. We're recording before then this little insert. Yeah, you're our favourites. Arsenal are favourites for the fixture. I, I quite like that because Unai Emery has been relentlessly playing us down where they said to him yesterday, Pep Guardiola said you're in a title race. And he said, yep, there's seven teams better than us. Now, he wouldn't go on and name those seven teams because those seven teams don't exist. Maybe three teams exist. But 
going against Arsenal and being being the underdogs is quite funny because it does allow us to say, well, it's a free hit for it, isn't isn't it? So, you know, I I back our midfield over their midfield and I back our defence over their defence. And yeah. No Arteta as well, which will be nice, which means the players can run down the wing without fear of tripping over Arteta as he stands eight yards out of his tent. Yes, he does love a bit of that. Uh, yeah, no, genuinely, it's 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 a it's a mad stat. Uh, well, no, it's not even a stat really for us about it. Just a mad uh, a mad thing that Arsenal are evens uh, at the time of uh, recording, and uh, Aston Villa are twenty one to ten um, at the time of recording, uh, which means the same. Um, the draw is is edges just a little likelier uh, than an Aston. The, 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 basically, it's mad. You've won fifteen consecutive home games, and the, the betting market. The view of the betting market is the least likely outcome on Saturday at half past five is that Aston Villa win the game. It, it, it is nice that people still don't take us very seriously because I think I think Man City took us very seriously last night by playing five centre backs, but other team other teams aren't, especially when we play play them like I think teams come to Villa and still think we're a bit of a soft touch, and now teams well after Man City, I think teams are going to come to Villa Park and be like. Oh, these are these are good. These aren't the Stephen Gerrard Aston Villa. These these boys well will put four past us if we let them. Let's. Uh, I mean, let, let I mean, let it be stated: the Friday show, I think, from about week two of the season, was not saying that Aston Villa at Villa Park were a soft touch. Uh, yeah. I think we were. I think we were. We were very much on board the train. We'll see where the train leads us. It'll be a pleasure to continue it through the rest of the season with Tom as it develops across. Uh, I'll have him on every show. Maybe on Friday nights in a minute. We're doing it in the downstairs here. Uh, yeah, I think you. Yeah, again, let's go. We'll get Tom on everything uh, between now and when the Villa bubble bursts. But what are we all going to do if the Villa bubble doesn't burst? Tom doesn't think it will. Uh, big, big, big game, half past five uh, on Saturday. Uh, Aston Villa versus Arsenal. Let's get back over now and see what Jim thinks of it. Always great to speak to Tom. Um, Jim, to talk about Arsenal before this, there's something odd where I feel like I watch Arsenal from time to time and I feel like the, the, they, they spend for a really good team which they are they spend an unbelievable amount of time on the brink in football <laughs> matches and I find it really really <laughs> fast too yeah yeah no exactly what I mean I, I feel I find it a really really <clears throat> odd development that like I almost feel like they welcome the brink into their lives they've decided that the only way we're going to win this league is if we spend loads and loads of time on the brink between a good season and bad between mm-hmm. winning and drawing and between drawing and losing that's really where they've decided to pitch the tent this season and I, I, feel, I do feel as though it's not quite a conscious choice I'm sure if Arteta was sat he'd say lads I'd quite like to win 3-0 every week <laughs> yeah, that'd yeah. be great but it does feel as though they've opened up this idea of if we need 100 minutes we'll take 100 minutes if we need to dog it out for 20 minutes we're going to do that that idea of we will suffer they've almost put suffering at the centre of their existence I think what it is is and I don't disagree with anything you just said Neil I think one of the big issues that Arsenal have faced this season is about how to address um, the shortcomings in 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 any team who's challenging for the titles, big problems which are the opposition and their the opposition's ability to score more goals than them. Now, obviously, I, I've said at the beginning of the season, City and Liverpool would be like would be their nearest rivals, and the reason why I said that is because they both score a lot of goals. Right now, Arsenal scored a lot of goals last season, but their big problem was conceding goals. Now, it's not rocket science, and there's no there's no magic wand that says that the team that tends to concede the least goals probably wins the title if they're any good. And what he's done is he's sacrificed a bit of that attacking fluidity for a bit of defensive solidity. And it's not even the solidity 
factor as much as the ability to control games in the right moments. Mm. Now, he completely lost the plot on Tuesday night against Luton. Um, and some of the old Arsenal things crept into play, you know, being beaten at set pieces and stuff like that. And to be fair, they'd really done their homework in that respect, Luton. But I think that's, I think that's the, the anomaly. I don't think that will be... I think we'll see less of that moving forward. And actually, Arsenal's defending and attacking from set pieces has been pretty good. <laughs> Declan Rice has been just... An absolute marvel for Arsenal this season, right? To say in to say along with Bellingham, England have possibly got the two most effective central midfielders in world football right now would not be putting too fine a point on it. And I think his evolution under Arteta has been one of the keys to how well he's done. Um, it has it, it, it's again a lot about that controlling of the games. What is interesting is that Odegaard seems to come into a bit of form as well at the right time, um, and it's lovely to watch. He's a beautiful footballer, yeah. not Odegaard, mm. and it's and it's it's really great to see him. You know, to 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 explain some of the reasons why he didn't look the player he was, you know, a month and a half ago. Now he feels more like that player. That pass, I, I was critical. I'm 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 super critical of Odegaard because at times at last season he gave the ball away in 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 games where he looked very very casual and it cost us dearly. And my son, who's an Arsenal fan as well we sit there and he gets right at me because he understands football and he plays it at a, de at a decent level and he says you're really really twitchy about this right mm -hmm. and he's right because I care about it more than he does <laughs> right but but at the moment when you want your player and your captain to do something that you don't expect him to do he's done it and that was that was the case on, mm -hmm. on, on, on Tuesday night his control of those situations where I would have, if it was me or any other player would have been doing something completely different was just mm. artistry. And it's such a lovely thing to watch. That calm, that calmness to be able to know that it's time to do something different and be able to pick the moment. It was really key. Like it was just changing that slight angle of attack <sighs> for the ball that came in. But I, I think for me, the reason why uh, Odegaard seems to have gone up in the couple of last couple of weeks is that him and Rice have finally started to understand each other on a deeper level. So, because obviously Odegaard wants to be the controller, he wants to be the commander who controls the tempo, but opponents know that. And over the course of Arsenal getting better, uh, more and more teams have started to put a man on Odegaard. Or an Odegaard two. plan, at least. An Odegaard mm. plan. Yeah. And. And for a time, he struggled to kind of get to grips with it, and the midfield around him was kind of a bit transient as well. You had uh, Jorginho coming in a bit, you had Havertz coming in a bit, Vieira coming in a bit. <laughs> but at the at the centre of all of it, the centre of Arsenal going forward in the next three to four years is Odegaard Rice, and the ability of Rice to be a template and a tempo setter as well, and know that when times when Odegaard is being doubled, Odegaard can just play a ball to him, and Rice can just play balls out to Saka or to the wings from a deeper position and still be as influential, that kind of almost like not being able, almost like an, uh, an unwritten understanding between the two of when they can switch, that I think is what has made them both look so good now. The, the personal detail of those front six actually has shifted slightly since last season and I think there's been a little bit of embedding of the new, of, 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 of the new kind of roll call, mm -hmm. what's being expected of them. For instance, that ball that went into Rice for the winner, um, like 
it was very interesting to see Zinchenko give give that ball back inside. Whereas I think last last season Zinchenko takes that ball on himself, and it, and whether it yeah, happens, yeah. It, it it doesn't happen. That's clearly an instruction from the manager that Martin's got to get on the ball. But you also see the the the, the kicking that Havertz had got at the beginning of the season, the the hangover from Chelsea, Chelsea, and all that stuff. All of a sudden, he looks like something that now makes a bit more sense than it did. You know, when when we fought, when we you know, shifted the money for him, Trossard's coming in now and playing in the left eight. So you've now got at times Trossard or Havertz playing with Martinelli instead of Martinelli, and I think it's those kind of things that, again, I'm my kingdom for you know a 30, 30 goal a season striker. Wouldn't we all want one of those? If they don't exist, look at what you've got. And plan for mm. the, plan for the moment. And what was interesting was again, you know, I don't think you know he obviously done a bit of rotation on Tuesday night. I don't think the starting eleven would have been his preferred starting eleven. We've only got six six um, fully fit defenders at the moment. Arsenal mm. going into a, going into a busy period of the season where we've got just in December games against Liverpool. Um, I think who else are we playing the, obviously Villa this weekend obviously Villa this weekend we've got to play Brighton and then we've got back to back games against Palace Fulham and West Ham now no one no, no other team other than a London club gets three local derbies back to back right that's going to be a tough old thing six fully fit defenders and one mm. of them Cedric <laughs> <laughs> so five then mm. They, they look to me like they're trying to be more Liverpool than Man City at this point. And if you think about the, the title-winning teams, Josh, they look to me like you know Liverpool play some brilliant stuff, don't get me wrong, <clears> in 19-20, but they make it crystal clear they're grinding everything out and they're in for yeah. a fight. And they're not at that, the level of that Liverpool team because that Liverpool team won 26 of the first 27 games. You know That's grinding it out at, at, at biblical levels. Mm. No one's ever grounded out like that. But they do look to me, Arsenal, like there is, there is a real focus. I'm intrigued where the areas where there aren't. The goalkeepers thing remains a thing. It, it feels like it's a really prominent thing that rattles around them. And as Jim's also said, the defensive injuries will be uh, the one more defensive injury away from being very close to it being a bit of a crisis point. Well, I think the goalkeeper thing is is particularly interesting. Obviously, it's been a it's been a big narrative for, for Arsenal this season. And I I must admit, in terms of what Arteta has done, I I'm generally in favour of it as a as a kind of idea in terms of if you're trying to win a league title I think the ruthless edge of, of upgrading your goalkeeper if he's, if he's simply not good enough in terms of winning a title I am broadly in favour of I think the issue is he's upgraded it um, went from Ramsdale's rare and I, I, I think the the improvement isn't particularly glaring it's, it's not it's not like a, a clear like say for example if he was going towards an Allison, it would be like Liverpool went from from Mignolet to to Allison or from Carriers to Allison, that is a, a worthwhile upgrade. And I think so far, Ray it's not a conversation for anyone, is mm, it? It's done. No. He, he's the better one. That's that sorted out. Yeah. So uh, the fact that Arteta's done it and been brave enough to do it, uh, as as I said, I think it's I think it's a really bold but needed move. But I think Ray so far has looked a bit shaky at times. I think particularly Luton was was concerning for me. I think from from set pieces he looked he looked generally a little bit weak and. There was a moment where I can't remember what goal it was. It might have been the third, but he he, he essentially gets out muscled. There's a bit of contact there, but not enough for a foul to be given, which is saying something in the Premier League nowadays. And I think that the camera kind of panned to him after it, and he looked a little bit like 
the, the rabbit in the headlights mm. perspective. There's a couple of things there, Josh. Right. Firstly, I don't understand why he needed to do it. And, and all he's done by, by signing Raya, right, is he's, he's, is he's created a lack of confidence in both of them mm. because neither of them... Either, come, out and tell, come out and tell everybody that Raya's your number one, right? Then it settles Raya... Mm. Right, Ramsdale has to then go and we either have to cash in on Ramsdale, and we would get we we get a decent screw for him, right? Or or don't sign Raya in the first place, right? Arsenal have, Arsenal's goalkeeping issues actually go back to Burn Leno, right? When Burn Leno got injured, right, Martinez came in, right, and this is under Arteta, mm. and we won the we won the FA Cup with Martinez mm-hmm. in the side. Right, Martinez made it clear he wasn't going to stick around any longer, right? And Villa came in with a twenty million offer. Now Arsenal quite quite clearly needed the money at that time, right? Because it was FFP, it was after COVID, well, it was during the lockdown, right? There was a lot of factors surrounding that, right? So we surrendered Martinez, right, and kept Leno, right? Now I don't quite understand. How, if you can see these goalkeepers at close quarters, you can't tell that Emi Martinez is one of the best goalkeepers in the world, right? What is stopping you from knowing that that guy's going to, in two years' time, become a World Cup winner, mm. right? Right. That's the first thing. Secondly, we then, go and, we then go and get rid of Leno because supposedly he's not good enough with his feet, right? He gets binned for Ramsdale, Right, because Ramsdale comes in because he's got better feet than Leno, right? But it, from what I can gather, Ramsdale was never Arteta's first choice. Raya was, because the guy that does the goalkeeping coaching at Arsenal was the guy that had been the goalkeeping coach at Brentford, and he said, he's your guy. But Arsenal wouldn't spend the money at the time, right? Because they wanted too much money. So they, they waited to drag his, drag his contract down. We then signed, we, we signed Ramsdale in, in, in the meantime, because I think Ramsdale had a, had a clause in his contract which says, if a Premier League club comes in for me, right, and, and the money is here, we can, we can get him. So he's, en- he, so he's ended up creating a mess, as far as I can see, of his own making. And the one, the one place on the pitch where you really got to go, you're my guy, mm-hmm. right? It's the goalkeeper, and he hasn't done that. I, I think that's, that, that's my biggest probably question mark attached to Arsenal, because it, it will get to a point in the season where, let's say we're in, you know, into March or something like that, and Liverpool and City are both within such a distance of Arsenal. The, the pressure on the goalkeeper will, will ramp up, and it will be so high beyond what you see in a in a night game from set pieces at Luton mm. and I think that would be my worry I think everything you've just said makes complete sense um, but I think that the overwhelming issue attached to what Arteta has done I think I don't think it's the logic behind it I think it's more it's not glaringly obvious who is better and I think it, it, that, it, it, it so if, don't sign him exactly if, if that was not the case though I think supporters would, and, and I think mm. Everton would be working a lot better than Arteta would look like a genius. And I, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the fact that the reason why it looks so bad is because Raya isn't performing. If Raya was performing to a higher level, then this would not be a conversation. It would be another feather in Arteta's cap. I think the goalkeeping coach thing is one of those things in football where apparently they have a much more big influence on goalkeepers coming in and out than we realise. I remember the stories coming around and it was the same with the Robert Sanchez to uh, Brian, um, to Chelsea from Brighton situation. But 
you are both right in as much as this is entirely something that Arteta's created himself and could end up becoming a bit of an Achilles heel. Yeah, what I think what I think is quite interesting, and this is my hottest of hot takes uh, around contemporary Premier League football, is that I think that Manchester United and Arsenal each signed the wrong keeper and they should have signed the other one. Uh, and then from <laughs> because I think that the the, the, the biggest issue the lad who's in goal for Manchester United's got is he's got too much to do, uh, and he, he would rather be doing all the other things and looking like he can ping it all over the place and all of that, which he would have the luxury if he was playing for Arsenal. Um, just dead quick, Arsenal, Aston Villa versus. Arsenal, Jim. Guess who's favourites <laughs> with the bookmakers? Guess who's favourites? Oh, probably Villa. No. Oh, really? It's mad. Villa have won 15 consecutive home games, yeah. and Villa, the the the, the betting it has Villa at a, a a notch over two to one to win. Right. Uh, a draws two to one, and Arsenal are even money. Right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm with that because I, because I think we're banging form, and I think one of the one of the, one of the big takeaways from Arsenal this season has been their impressive away form. Okay, uh, I'll come back to you then, Jim, and just sort of put a little bit of pressure on Arsenal's results this season against sides that currently sit in the top ten. They've played five, they've won two, uh, drawn two, lost one uh, of those, and even one of the ones they won is three-one against Man United when it's one-one on ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm, all those games are really tight. The three-one's the biggest outcome. Obviously, it's one-nil against City. It's two-all against Tottenham. It's losing one-nil at Newcastle. A tight defeat. Where yeah, they scrapped for it. Scrapped for it to the bitter end. I, yes, obviously, Gumeras should have been sent off, and that was the thing Arsenal should have moaned about, not the goal. Uh, and the two-all against Chelsea away. The three-one win against Man United. I'm intrigued by how often they become slogs. Is, the, is my point? Slogs that Arsenal have won at times. Do you think this? one cannot be a slog no I think it will be an absolute slog there we go okay yeah I think it'll be an absolute slog and um, because I think Villa are a top top side and everywhere I look on the, on the pitch because I really took a big interest in that game last night is they've got players that are bang in form you know how I feel about Ollie Watkins I think he's a top player McGinn oh, mm. who couldn't love that guy <laughs> incredible oh, he, abs- he was linked with us a few years back then yeah yeah yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean you know exceptional player yeah, absolutely yeah. fantastic Good at the back, Louise in banging form. I expect a really, really difficult game. And you know what? I, I, last time I was on, right, I said we. I forget who was sitting here, um, but um, whoever it was, we were talking about the the, the the levels, and we were all slagging Ten Hag off, basically saying he wasn't <laughs> a top manager. Right, and I said, but who are the best managers in the country? Look at your top four now, right? Add Guardiola to that as, as your five. There's your top, there's your best managers. Um, agree with that. Um, City not in the top four. Yeah, the fourth. Oh, are they? I didn't agree with that, people. They are the <laughs> <best managers. laughs> uh, sure Yeah, uh, in there as well at the minute. Uh, but yeah, no, the City are fourth, and, and I think they are the four best managers yeah. at the moment in the division. Um, how's it going to play out? <sighs> it's a difficult one to predict. That are you expecting to win? Are you Jim, or? Yes. Oh yeah, it's bold. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's difficult to predict. I mentioned Unai Emery area as an underdog. I think when he can come up with a tactical plan for an isolated game, he's really really good. He is. Um, <laughs> I think Villa have real threats in transition nowadays. You know, with, with Watkins and and Bailey. You know, really two footed Diaby, really two footed and rapid as well. So they can go both ways. They can score with either foot. Um, they've got really mobile fullbacks. Players in the middle who can play. So. Rest of cash midweek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was in a position to rest two or three. Tommy Asu was a bit of a miss for us for this game. Mm, to yeah. be honest with you, he'd have played. Yeah, but I think I think Villa have the the strength nowadays to really adapt, depending on the game. And mm-hmm. e- even when they're not the strongest outfit in terms of say dominating the ball, for example, I think you've got the threats now to just really kill you with moments like they did against Spurs. 
And I think that's what Arsenal have become good at in their away games as well, the, the killing you of moments. And it's funny because lots of people are focused on the light, last-minute goals or last-five-minute goals. I think the most instructive goal uh, was the third one against Luton, where Luton have just scored to make it 3-2. They just had a really good period in the game. Arsenal are maybe asking questions about their goalkeeper, about their defenders. Luton are getting ready to make a triple substitution, take their eye off the ball a little bit. Arsenal get in there, bang, 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 3-3. So that means that I think both teams are going to be able to do the same thing to each other. And I love, love, love games of football like this. Ask me who I think is going to win. Uh, I actually think neither of them are going to win. I think it's going to be a draw. I think neither of them are going to win as well. Uh, okay, John Gibbons today went to the launch of the House of Memories that LFC are doing with uh, the Liverpool, the Museum of Liverpool. Uh, and uh, when he was there, he spoke to Becky Easton and Kate ellis Carrick. And then after that, uh, Fulham are played at 2pm on Sunday and we'll be speaking to Jack Collins. It's John Gibbons for the Anfield app with a partnership courtesy of NordVPN. NordVPN have partnered with us before and we're delighted they are doing so again, not just for their support, but also because they offer loads of benefits to the football fan like yourself. There's lots of benefits to sign up to NordVPN, including, of course, watching sporting events, TV shows or films which aren't available in your region by switching your virtual location to a country which is showing the events. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but a few of our games aren't on telly this season, but they are on TV somewhere, and you can find them by switching your virtual location. That's obviously one of the benefits of a VPN service like Nord, but they are one of the best around, and lots of reasons why, including that they protect your private data, like bank details, passwords, and online identity. Uh, with one click, you're able to switch your virtual location to another country, which also allows you to save money by purchasing flights, hotels, and subscriptions from other countries at a cheaper price. Now, I do need to point out that the Amphio app subscription is the same price in every country, but others aren't, and that includes hotels and flights as well. So you can have a little look around and see what deals you're able to do yourself there. Uh, personally for, for me uh, a big one with NordVPN is knowing that my data is protected when I'm travelling abroad and using public Wi-Fi uh, wherever I am in the world and know that I'm protected from viruses uh, from malicious malware and phishing sites it's also the fastest VPN in the world which is important for what I'm sure you're going to use it from no buffering or lagging while streaming uh, which is the last thing you want when you're watching live sports you want it to be a smooth process don't you especially when you're watching the Reds and they are able uh, to provide that for you. It is the same price as one cup of coffee a month and your account can be used on up to six devices. So if you want a huge discount of your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com forward slash TAW. That is nordvpn.com forward slash TAW. That code will give you four additional months free on top of the two-year plan. And they're also that confident that you'll enjoy the service. They'll offer you a 30-day money-back guarantee. So that place to go again is nordvpn.com forward slash T-A-W. The link can also be found in the episode description box wherever you listen. Enjoy, and thanks a lot to NordVPN for partnering with us again. It's John Gibbons from the Anfield Wrap, and I'm at Anfield on a non-match day, which is always a lovely pleasure. And I'm here at the launch of the House of Memories app, which the National Museums Liverpool are doing in conjunction with the LFC Foundation. I'm from uh, the foundation now. Uh, delighted to be joined uh, by Katie ellis Carrick uh, to talk to us about your involvement in this. So first of all, thanks for inviting us down today. Appreciate it. No worries. Hi, John. And um, welcome. So uh, how do we get involved with the House of Memories app? So they approached us actually in lockdown about how we could potentially create an LFC memories element to the app. 
and um, they've got lots of other parts to the app so they've got like other museum artifacts and various things but they've not had a football club take part in this yet so we're actually the first football club to get involved and um, we know that more and more people are living with dementia and we wanted to do something that uh, meant that people could use the app but also that intergenerational element so we can really teach young people about dementia they can go home with their family members download the app and just share memories of being Liverpool fans together and that's it isn't it because you know in this city especially but you know all around the world football is, is what unites us and also the memories that we get from football it almost takes us to somewhere somewhere else so using football for something like this almost kind of feels ideal yeah, and I think when you live with dementia, you might forget what you've done in the morning, but you remember memories from a long time ago. So when we've been taking the app out to care homes and trialling it with different people, you can really see them get really excited about the memories and the pictures that they've seen. European nights, nights out at Anfield, how they get to the ground, where they got the pie and the pipe from, and all the kind of stories that then make them remember who they were with, you know, what happened that night. So... Um, the good thing is we were speaking to the Forever Reds group about it um, and Becky Easton and John Barnes have been on the steering group, they put themselves forward. But we went to one of the Forever Reds meetings the other week to kind of update them on the progress and they were like, we really want to come to the launch. So loads of them are here today that actually just are really interested in being part of this. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of former players living with dementia and I think it means something to the, the players to really get involved with this. And that connection with the fans, like when John Aldridge was with us this morning in a care home, he was actually more excited about seeing the pictures of some of the people in the care home. Um, so it's just great how it just sparks conversation straight away. And I guess the, the beauty of the football club is there's so many fantastic artefacts from Liverpool's history. Some of them are here today. It was a fantastic thing to walk in and see, you know, old shirts and trophies and then having a look at some of the programmes that you've got. All that is here and the, and the people here do a great job of curating that and having that. And that is all stuff that I guess you can use for, for things like this. Absolutely. So when we decided we were going to fund this, the first people that we spoke to were the museum because we knew that they'd have so many memories and things for us to use. But we've also worked with Emma Case and the Red Archive so she's brought loads of artifacts so if you look in the app it tells you like where the pictures have come from some are LFCs, some of the red archives and a lot of them are just things that fans have given the club before the museum or Emma's had them in the red archives so they're not necessarily all pictures of the players some of them might be I think there's a mug from one of the FA Cup finals there's all sorts of things that people kind of have in, in their home where they were like this reminds me of the good times of being a Liverpool fan and just to finish up on the legends you mentioned there the, the two of the legends who are, who are very involved but there's loads here today. I was just laughing with another uh, another friend here from the media saying there's not many times, you know, there's been a, such a big football to non-footballer ratio when I've been in the room. I feel like there's, you know, half the people here are players, but that just shows, you know, what being involved with the foundation means to them and Forever Reds and stuff like that. But like you always say, there'll be people that you know, sometimes in some cases, teammates, you know, who suffer from dementia. And so it is something that, that touches a lot of us and another reason, I guess, why, why there are so many players here today. Yeah, I think unfortunately all of us have had a family member or a friend who's had dementia. Um, so the Forever Reds group are honestly really, really passionate about doing more to support this. And I think what we want to do now is be able to make people aware of the app and actually use it. So our plan at the foundation is that we're going to take it into schools. We're going to go out in the community and, and show people how to use it, how to download it and actually start to share memories together. Yeah. And just before we finish, I do have to mention Jürgen Klopp calling you guys the best performing um, part of the whole football club. Now, when you see the quality on the pitch and how well the, the, the team are doing, it just shows the esteem that the manager 
you know, hold to you guys. And that must be a real boost because I know quite often, you know, obviously you're working, you know, every day to, to make, you know, lives better, both, both here and abroad for lots of people. And so, you know, when the figures come out of all the fantastic work you're doing and the manager takes time out to praise you guys, it must be really nice. Yeah, I think we were all really excited when we saw Jürgen saying that the other day. And, um, you know, over the last few years, we have worked really hard to kind of help raise the profile of the foundation amongst the players and the manager. Obviously, Jürgen is an ambassador um, and he does a lot for us. We were there the other week with Jürgen and we've got lots of things that happen at AXA where we take um, visits. And I think it's really starting to show that um, what we're doing is making a real difference. And for the manager to tell you that in his press conference was just made you feel really proud, to be honest. Absolutely. Well, you should feel proud of all the fantastic work we do. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the AFNL. Cool. Thank you, John. And now joined by Becky Easton, who's one of the LFC legends who's been involved. So, Becky, thanks for coming over for chat, first of all. No problem. Nice to be here. Um, so tell us more about why you put yourself forward um, to, to get more involved in the House of Memories project. Yeah, so they asked for kind of volunteers. I'm on the former player committee, um, the Forever Reds committee, and me and John Barnes kind of put ourselves forward to be on the steering group for this this app. So it started from there, really. We had the first meeting and it was like a brainstorming meeting. And, you know, what a club to have so many memories. It's probably the ideal club for something like this. And it just went from there, really. To be honest, we played a small part in it. The the National Museums of Liverpool and the Foundation have kind of taken it on and, and made it what it is today. Yeah, I don't know what it is today we're going we're gonna to see now. Uh, we're gonna, this is sort of before the sort of presentations, but you've obviously you know, been involved, so you've sort of have, have a look. And, you know, what memories did it stay for you as you know, a Liverpool fan and, and someone who's obviously played for the club? And, and what will it do for, for the people who are going to be able to access it? Yeah, so I've had a little play on the app and it's brilliant. It does take you back. Um, I'm, I'm not that old, but, you know, it takes me <laughs> it takes me back to like the cup finals of the 80s against Everton and, and certain goals and celebrations and things. And I think for fans who are living with dementia and the families, you know, it's a great, a great resource for them to go back in time to those times and hopefully give them good memories as well. And, and just a little period of time where they can have a look and, you know, and take them back to times that maybe hopefully they remember and it makes them happy. And there's nothing like football, is it, to, to take us back to, to places or times. And I'm sure if it, it, it was the same for you as, as a player as well as a supporter. You know, certain games, you know, you, you just sort of go back there in your mind. And there must be so many memories, you know, from, from your career, especially and winning trophies and things like that. That if someone just says a date or even a place, you're suddenly there, you know, remembering a goal or a celebration. I think so, definitely. Yeah, I can remember the big moment. My memory's not that great anymore, but I can remember the big moments clearly, you know when we won the cup final in 2010 and Tash Dowie scored the winner in, in injury time. And um, I can remember my first England cap and, and the game against Germany. And, you know, moments like that, I can remember. So I think it's the same for fans. I can remember moments as a fan as well. Brilliant moments with my family, with my dad, who's no longer with us. So, you know, it takes me back to those times as well. It's, it's, ju it's just a great idea, I think. And just to finish off, how much are you enjoying being part of these steering groups, being part of the football club, being part of the sort of the legends committee? If you look around now, there's there's about you know, will there be over two thousand appearances for Liverpool in terms of the people in there? Me, Phil Neal's got half of them, I think, you know, and, and probably half the medals as well. But you know, you're looking at Alan Kennedy, you know, um, you know, European Cups winning goals, John Aldridge and all the all the goals that he scored. You know, John Barnes is here somewhere, and 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 yourself with with you with your medals and your experiences. You know, how much do you enjoy sort of being part of that and being part of, you know, I guess not not just events like this, but projects like this as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I have to pinch myself sometimes because I'm like stood over there in a group with Phil Neal, Alan Kennedy, John Aldridge, as you say, and Phil Neal's talking about, you know, his debut when he sat next to Callie and things like that. You know, I never get bored of hearing the stories. Um, so for me, that's brilliant growing up as a Red as well. And, you know, hopefully it's something we can continue. I'm, I'm honoured and proud to be part of the committee and to be still part of the club at my age. And, you know, my playing days are over, but I'd love to be involved as much as possible. And, you know, projects like this, you know, dementia, it's, it's a tough condition at the moment. And my family are personally, you know, suffering. We've got two members of our family who are living with it. So it's a personal thing as well, Liz. So, you know, it's just great to be involved. Well, I mean, well done for putting yourself forward and so's again involved, you and John, of course, and I'm fantastic to speak to you today. If people want to get more involved, uh, you can download uh, the app now. If you just go to houseofmemories.co.uk, uh, they are on uh, Facebook, uh, uh, the House of Memories, uh, Twitter, at house underscore memories, and you can hashtag Kerry Museums as well if you do want to. Uh, hear more, read more and maybe download the app and have a little play yourself and it might be something that's really useful for someone that you know but uh, that has been John Gibbons lovely to be down here today uh, Me and Jack Collins Jack uh, just knows so much about Fulham and you know I just in general I'm a great football brain and then we sit down before Liverpool play Fulham and we talk about the fact that Fulham you know they find it so hard going forward at the minute and there's no pace so you know what I mean it's a frustrating time it's going to be difficult and then they scored 8-2 uh, Jack we know fuck all uh, Marco Silva knows loads Fulham looking yeah. good Nick yeah, all of a sudden, the week this week's been the turnaround, right? From we've had ten days between Wolves in our first game, you know, of this of this little run, and then and then Nottingham Forest last night with obviously a trip to Anfield in the middle, scored more goals than we did in the first twelve games of the season. <laughs> it's, it's eleven and three, yes, of course, and it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Um, all of a sudden, the sides seem to have found something, and and you know, it's one of those where there hasn't been an obvious change. And I think that that's, that makes it interesting. And actually what Fulham look like we found is a rhythm. And obviously there was a lot of chopping and changing at the start of the season, especially up front. Raul got the nod at the start of the season, didn't work immediately. Obviously Carlos Vinicius came in, did a little bit more running around. People liked that. People got excited. Rodrigo Muniz came in, did even more running around equally. <laughs> it's a very little kind of actual effect. And suddenly it looks like Raul has just gone, look, I'm not Alexander Mitrovic. I do different things. Can you play the way that I want to play, please? And suddenly, Fulham looked like their team and attack again. And look, it's gonna. It was always gonna take some, you know, doing. It was always gonna take a little bit of adjustment. But finally, it looks like they've understood that Raul wants to come deep. The wingers are coming inside to try and make things happen. We're seeing Tom Kenny burst past him from midfield. He's been massive in the home games. And Andreas, I think for the first time last night, really looked like he had a connection with the players around him. And look, he's coming back from a long-term injury, obviously, at the end of last season. You can blame all of those things. But I think generally he might have been the player that was missing Mitrovic the most, player that sort of bounced off him the most, made the most you know, intricate passes in the final third. And he's just about, it looks like, worked out how to do that, but with a few more players around him. Raul, fine, but Awobi as well, drifting off that, that right-hand side last night. It all just seems to have clicked in terms of going forward. Now, it's not perfect. And I think that whilst we're seeing you know, vast improvements in where Fulham are, there are still going to be question marks. There's still going to be games this season where you look at it and go, with Mitrovic, do we win that game? But just all of a sudden, it looks like Silver has got them to click in the international break in terms of what they're trying to do in the final third. And it's enjoyable to watch all of a sudden again. 
what I noticed last night in terms of selection, the Tosin comes in and gets the full 90 as well. And he comes in for Tim Ream, who is club captain. Do you feel as though that's it now? That is the direction of travel. That's what what he's going to do. That's where he lives. I think it's the long-term direction of travel. Um, it's probably worth pointing out that obviously Calvin Bassey is a left-handed, left-sided centre-back and his shift over to the left is, is what's displaced Tim Ream. Tosin comes in on his preferred right. And suddenly there looks like that balance in terms of the way that the two of them can play out and they're doing slightly different things. Bassi looked far more comfortable last night, not just in terms of being on his preferred side, but also kind of taking the Tim Ream role of, of being ball dominant at the back, being the one that likes to stretch the play, being the one that steps into midfield. All of those things seem to suit his game a little bit more. Obviously, Bassi goes off to AFCON in January. So Tim Ream will play games. I don't think this is the the end of his time at Fulham. I don't think this is the end of his tenure. I still think he's going to be an important player and, and also character in the dressing room this season. But I think this is Marco Silva's long-term direction of travel. Yeah, I think that it was a case of how do you phase an, a player who's as important as Tim Ream in not just defensive phases and marshalling the team, but also in build-up out of this Fulham side. And in Bassi, I mean, look, the two of them weren't tested very much last night, so it's probably worth bearing that in mind that it's easy to look good against this Forest side right now. Yeah. But on you know on what we've seen, and you can only judge them on that so far, it, it looked good. Um, you mentioned before about Jimenez. I suspect he'll be a, bit, a little bit disappointed to be substituted. We all know he's substituted because he's starting the next one. But I suspect for a footballer who's found goals difficult to come by for an extended period, he will have been you know steaming at the idea of getting a third and getting a hat-trick. Um and what would be also, to me, has always been an interesting player because he looks like he's sort of technically and physically got all the bits. But every now and again, it does all come together as it does last night. The, the two footballers who both need a goal, needed a goal. And I'd sort of argue with this one at the weekend that I don't want to sort of sound like a maniac where there's just been a good Fulham win and now there definitely needs to be another one. But I sort of feel like it wouldn't be the end of the world for Fulham, but well, it would obviously be excellent in general, but even more excellent if either of them both of them could get on the score sheet again. You feel like they need to build on, on performances. Yeah, I think this is it. With, with Raul, so much of it has been, okay, his link play is good, but he's still doing a lot. And there are still gaps where he should be in front of goal. He doesn't attack the front post. It's just not really his style. Whereas with Awobi, I think the performances have been there. And we've seen throughout this season that when Awobi's on the pitch, and often it's not tangible. Sometimes, you know, when there's a player on the pitch and you go, we're a better side with that player in here. And Awobi's played, what, five different roles for Fulham now? He's played 10, 8, both flanks. Uh, and at a time, sort of, even given a role as a, as a very, very small false nine. And you're going, okay, there's clearly something about him that Silva wants to have on the pitch in some capacity at all times. And it's important to say that, you know, that when these players come along, it doesn't necessarily matter whether they start left, right, centre. It's just better to have them in there. And Fulham already have a couple of these players. I always think it would be better with Bobby Reid on the pitch. Right now, he can't get in the team because Awobi has stepped into that gap and gone, no, I do all those things too. I'm just slightly better than you at it. And and so when you kind of, exp- you know, I, I think you're right in terms of Raul in particular, what he really needs is his run on. And and also there's something about getting important goals. Yeah, mm. they obviously gets the second and the third and they feel really big. One of them is his first goal in front of the Hammersmith end, which is obviously nice. But more than that, he scored the goal against Aston Villa. Consolation, 3-1 defeat. Fine. He's off the mark. But confidence as much as goals, crucial. And I think yesterday it felt like he was part of the side. And you see the celebrations afterwards, the rest of the team going to him. All of it's very wholesome in so many ways. But actually, I think that that's the important thing now, getting him off to a a little run of form and goals that continue that 
flowing and continue that steps to, you know, trying to make himself back to the player he was. Now, he might never get there. He might never be at that. He's, he's at, you know, probably the start of the twilight of his career. But I think if we're going to get the tune out of Fulham this season, he's going to be very important in terms of how the other team, how the rest of the team work around him. And their confidence in just playing him the ball yesterday was noticeable as opposed to perhaps earlier in the season where they swung a few crosses in, he's got nowhere near them, and then suddenly he's not involved in build-up. That was the thing I think that changed last night, and that revolves around him playing with confidence. I just want to sort of say that this obviously this is a big game this weekend uh, against West Ham um, for, for this Fulham side. Then the weekend after, it's off to Newcastle United. What's in my head is there is a cup quarterfinal on the horizon, that this is a good time to find a little bit of fall. Uh, there's a Tuesday night game against Everton. I'm with the reality of where the league table currently is, you know, a good result this weekend puts full on the other side of 20 points off 16 games. It, you know, will almost certainly increase the gap to, you'd have thought, some combination of Luton, Everton and Burnley. Uh, it seems like the big game on the horizon is the League Cup one. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think that Silver will think like that? Or is that how certainly how the fans feel? I think there's a lot of, exper- you know, kind of expectation in the fan base that, Whilst we, you know, that Everton game is a tricky place. We obviously we spoke about this on the podcast before that of late Fulham have had a pretty good record at Goodison Park, but fun, you know, fundamentally and, and historically we've been dreadful basically every time we go to Merseyside. So obviously there is a sense that uh, a performance there is necessary. I think that when you look at this team, a cup run is something that fans can get behind, and there was a sense of that last year, right? Until it obviously all came crashing down at Manchester United, and we were one nil up in that game. Yeah. And and looking good. And suddenly I was like, oh, we're going to Wembley. Because that would be something that the fans can dive into. And I think that the two top seven, top eight is too strong to break. Now, Fulham are the same amount of points from fifth as we are from the relegation zone right now. And as we've said, the teams at the bottom are scrapping about their hunting. But it doesn't look like the quality is going to be there in order to actually you know kick out of that. When we're kind of looking at what a season now entails, a visit to Wembley would be very, very high on... I think any fans wish list coming up to Christmas in in terms of just giving us something to to, to latch onto and the, the League Cup has has proven not particularly fertile hunting ground for Fulham of late so to be able to go and do that and also there is an element with the League Cup as opposed to the FA Cup I think that because the finals so early in the season if something was to go wrong you know with the with the league campaign there's enough time to salvage it. As opposed to if you're in the semi-finals of the FA Cup and you're also looking over your shoulder at someone chasing you down in the pack behind, then decisions need to be made that are slightly more difficult as opposed to ones in February where you go, well, we've got enough time to clear this barrier anyway. So I think that that is now the game on the horizon that stands out. And I think when you when you look at what this Fulham team can achieve, because look, we're not going to finish in the top, you know, top eight. We're not going to finish in the European places this season. There's just not quite enough spark, I don't think. And so if you can get to a point where you're like, hmm, one, League Cup, you know, getting in the final League Cup can lead to European qualification in itself. But more than that, I think there's definitely an element of, okay, where is this side going? We stabilised in the Premier League. We, for the first time, we stayed up last season. It looks like we'll be able to get a third season in the Premier League. What's opening up in front of us that might be a bit of an adventure and, and something exciting for the fan base? I think the League Cup looks like that opportunity. Last thing, then is this game at the weekend against West Ham. Um, West Ham are involved at the minute in a lot of tight games. Obviously, they haven't played yet, so it's slightly difficult to judge. Uh, but part of that is that Fulham do get an extra day's rest. Fulham are also able to sub people. Got to be confident. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the last time I spoke to you, you know, I was like, oh, well, there's absolutely zero confidence in what this side is producing right now. In the space of 10 days, 
that's almost flipped on its head. And, you know, go from going to that Wolves game and thinking, we're going to get anything about this Wolves side. They're, they're in decent form, they're in decent nick. To going into the West Ham game, and look, they are a bit of a hex team for Fulham. It is just one of those clubs that they they always seem to beat us by you know handballing in the box, whatever, whatever you want, really. And they seem to they seem to get away with it. So there's always an element of West Ham. You go, we'll probably dominate them for ninety minutes and lose one nil. But I think that just being able to go into that game and expect something, you expect to see a side that's you know playing in a nice fashion, which is something that West Ham don't have as well. You know, the fan base. They're happy enough with with how things are going in the cup competitions. I think the league form has been fine, but equally there is a bit of sense that is Moyes or has Moyes taken them to as far as he can reach with this group of players. If they want to kick on, do they have to shift onwards? That's a dangerous game, as we both know. But I think if they lose tonight to Tottenham, a win for Fulham against West Ham could lift us above them in the table, bring us into the top half. Those are things that just make everyone a little bit more secure. And those are the things I think that the fan base can latch onto in a season where expectation was relatively low before we kicked the you know kicked the ball in anger. Excellent stuff from Jack. Uh, let's get back over. Uh, always a pleasure to speak to Jack. Um, we're gonna rattle through a little bit. Luton versus City. The other games are a little bit tricky to talk about because the Thursday night games at the time of recording have not yet happened. So we're in a situation where whilst it would be glorious uh, to be able to genuinely preview um, Tottenham Hotspur versus Newcastle, for instance, it is not actually that easy to do so. Also, Everton, uh, I've got Chelsea. I don't know what to even say about Chelsea at this point. Uh, it feels as though, you, you know, you, it, it, like we could do it like I could give you sort of six disjointed sentences and you can believe any two of them uh, and we'll worry about the rest. So, like the way David Bowie used to write lyrics. Exactly yeah. like that. Yeah, just pull them out. Pull them yeah. out. It could be any of them yeah. at this point and that's also the way in which they're performing uh, that's what they're about in essence Luton Jim you've just had the, the Luton experience with Arsenal there is a universe where in the game where Luton play Arsenal where Arsenal go 2-0 up and the game gets away from Luton there's a universe where when Liverpool go to Luton Liverpool go 2-0 up the game gets away from Luton whilst we've all talked of City's potential weaknesses at the moment I still feel as though that's the universe we live in uh, in this one where City just get themselves to 2-0 and Luton know it's all over by the shouting and it becomes not a pummeling as such because I think that City at the minute will will probably conserve a little bit and Luton would look to sort of cover up but I, I do think for all the talk of City I do feel as though this is a good game for them to get where it'll feel like they've achieved something if they win it but the flip side of it is they almost certainly should win it. I thought Liverpool... Luton was the cautionary tale which led me to Kenilworth Road on Tuesday night in the sense of I took a real active interest in that game on the on, on the basis that God Luton gave you the bejesus out of you on, on on that particular occasion but it but everything about the Kenilworth Road experience is just just brilliant right now isn't it Do you know what I mean so whilst I I thought that would be a draw. The, that that game, I mean, it would have been disappointing to draw against Liverpool uh, against Luton at Kenilworth Road. I thought that may be where we would drop points. Interestingly, now City really have to go to Luton and make a statement, and I'm not sure whether they are capable of making a statement in the same way that perhaps they might have been able to ten days ago. Because I think this Luton are. A, 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 a force that we were a little bit surprised about. Hence the reason I say I don't think they'll go down because I just think they've got solidity. Everyone knows their job. Um, the crowd are amazing. They make loads of noise. It's tight. All of that does not lend itself to treble winners going there 
and mm. you know and and really putting on a show that said my predictions in this in in, <laughs> in, in, in this particular type of game are always bang off so you know it could quite easily end up with city winning 4-0 because they're the ones that have got to get the response Luton don't need anything out of this game it's man city isn't it at the end of the day mm. they've got bigger fish to fry in other games which they think they'll win no, I agree. I want to believe that this can be the one, and I do think that they will get a big one, Luton. I think that the way that they play at home will reap dividends in our big game. I just think that for this one, I don't think it's going to be the case. I think City will still be able to play their football. It'll be one of those we go into it maybe hoping, and then, like you say, Neil, it'll be 2-0 quite early on. I look at Luton's next two home games uh, it's against Newcastle and Chelsea. I'm pretty sure that they'll probably win one of those, but for this one, I can't see it. One of the interesting things about it, though, is obviously an ongoing narrative with, with City at the minute is this kind of treble winners, do they really want it and stuff. What One thing Luton do to you, especially when they're playing at home, they will test whether City wants it enough, essentially. And I sound a bit like Roo Keane saying that. But <laughs> it, it, I think there's an element of that in there, as in City will get tested in the sense that you will have to grind, you will have to put the evidence to show that you want it more than a group of players who are nowhere near as good as you. But they're fully representing... You know, a team that is just not accustomed to Premier League football, and it'll be interesting to see how City come out of that, and whether City can put up enough fights to, to kind of showcase mm. we're still in this fight, or, or whether they kind of get rolled over a little bit. Okay, excellent stuff. Thank you very much uh, to Josh, uh, to Jim, and indeed to Mo. We've had uh, Jack and Tom on the blower. Uh, excellent stuff across the board. It's been a great Friday show. I just can't believe it's come around that quick. I feel like I, was, I feel like I was in Bramall Lane twenty minutes ago. Sports Social Podcast Network.